Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Dr. Tim McLaren, is a young physician who now devotes his time to solving some of the bigger problems in healthcare, including how do physicians manage to keep up with medical science when the rate at which our knowledge about medical illness is increasing at an exponential rate. Here to describe his innovation and his journey is Tim McLaren. Tim, you're very welcome to this conversation. I'm delighted that we managed to connect and that we have this time together today. I want to start by, first of all, acknowledging that you are a physician or trained as a physician. I want to explore that a little bit with you. What to you is that all about? What is the ideal physician in 2023? Oh, man. In 2023, yeah, so much of that is has to do with the tough realities of our healthcare system, I think. Right now, the ideal physician is someone who can navigate having to see patients in a very compressed time and having to deal with all the administrative things that go along with it. And unfortunately, that's, that's kind of what has to be the ideal physician right now, is that someone who can deal with all those tough realities of, of practice in this world. That partly is because of the complexity also of medical science and how medical science is advancing at a rate that was unimaginable, certainly when I trained more than 30 years ago. Is that your impression? Absolutely. I think the latest figure I heard was that the sort of corpus of medical knowledge is doubling every 60 days now, which is just insane. So clearly, the days of like the physician who knows everything and kind of is up to date on everything are long gone. Um, and, and so now I think physicians now and going forward have to be able to understand the words. They have to understand the human body at least on the larger level and the, the larger themes, well enough so that when they are confronted with a, let's say, a rare disease, as, as um, I've been looking into a lot, that they're able to understand what they're seeing there. You know, they may not go into it knowing all about it, but when they read about it, they can understand it and they can make decisions off of that knowledge. When I'm faced these days with diagnostic tests, there are so many of them that that information can be overwhelming because you're trying to interpret things that, as you say, may not even have been dreamt about when the average physician who who in Australia and general practice is 50 years old may not even have been introduced to as a concept when they were training as a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the, the, the basics of like physiology and the human body and the terminology that we use for all these things that is something that we can hold on to, I think, and use as to try to understand all this new world that's unfolding. That brings me to the second point, and that is that in many, many ways, medicine hasn't changed at all in hundreds of years, because you've still got to get an accurate history. You've still got to make the patient feel that you are walking that journey with them, and that takes skills that have been part of the medical medical lexicon for generations. And in many ways, the art of doctoring, as I call it, has not changed very much. 
despite the fact that the science is changing so much. Yeah, and unfortunately, so much of that art of doctoring is what's being squeezed out in, with the current realities of practice. And that's that's the thing that's like the saddest to me and that what I feel like if I could make one dent in medicine, it would be that we could create a world where that art of medicine, the art of actually caring about a person, has a space. That's really reassuring, given the interest in AI and that you're interested in AI and other things, because clearly we both now establish that the art of medicine, the art of doctoring, is the key, and everything else is a very nice add-on. Why do you think it is that medicine has squeezed that so much that it has almost become a problem for patients? I think that there are so many reasons for that that smarter people than I could probably explain in much greater detail. I think in the U.S., one thing that just doesn't make sense to me is that insurance is paying for healthcare. I mean, we have this big, huge thing in between patients and doctors that is like just exists to take as much money and give as much, give as little money as it possibly can. That's the whole purpose for it to exist, you know, from a business perspective. And we let that be the, the system that we use for paying for healthcare. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think that's part of the reason. And then also part of the reason probably has to do with the amount of regulation that's in healthcare and the amount, which is also like, there are good reasons for the regulation, but it comes with a cost. And the possibilities of uh, lawsuits change the way that people practice medicine a lot of times. So, I mean, those, those are all factors and those are, I'm sure, nothing new to the people who are listening to this. You're talking about keeping shareholders happy in the business of making money or at least not losing money for for the insurance company. The business of regulation, which is about rationing of healthcare, making sure that resources are spent where they're needed the most, in theory. And of course, the whole business of the legal profession driving medicine into defensive posture, which becomes difficult because the first thing that you're thinking about is how many tests do I order to make sure that I've covered all bases? Right. And all of those things that we mentioned there have really good functions that need to be there, but they're also clear there. I mean, clearly they, they come at a cost. So often that cost is the art of medicine, I think. The other thing to bear in mind is that this has also created an enormous demand and an enormous waste of resource as well because over-servicing and iatrogenesis are two of the other things that are growing alongside the way that medicine is practiced. So it is very likely that something that's been prescribed may do you harm or that some test that you've or- that's been ordered is unnecessary and is costing us more. The area of the diagnostic odyssey that's the other area that i've heard you talk about and i really wanted to explore that with you what do you think are the roots of that i think it it comes down to for many patients it comes down to this the simple fact that in medical school and in subsequent training you and i have learned somewhere around 200 diseases that we could 
recognize confidently and, and diagnose. And that doesn't change significantly over the course of a career, but there are over 10,000 diseases out there and counting. So there's just this huge mismatch in what a physician would need to know in order to diagnose a, you know, any patient with a rare disease and what they actually do know. And I see sometimes people advocating for like doctors should know about this rare disease and this rare disease, you know, trying to like educate the whole world about every rare disease. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we're running up against the limits of human intelligence here. And this is where human intelligence needs to be supplemented by machine intelligence. They need to work together on this. So that's what we've been working on as a company is just getting per past that first problem of you don't know what you don't know. Getting the right diagnosis in front of someone, even if it's in a list of other possibilities, but at least getting it on the table to consider. I want to echo what you said there, that in med school, we will teach you about the 200 so-called common conditions, conditions that will get you through the exams, because you can only examine so much, and, and that's what you focus on. But you're right, there are many, many more conditions out there that you may not come across. Now, in the old days, the problem was that patients were being told, well, if you don't have one of these, it's probably all to do with your lifestyle, or it's probably all to do with some other factor almost as if to say it's all in your head. Which is something they're told all too often. Which is, indeed. And many of our guests here on this podcast, when they started on their, on their diagnostic odyssey, were told exactly that by somebody. Well-meaning, but clearly inaccurate, as it turned out in the end. So where to from here, Tim? How do we make sure that the patient who presents with some condition that is one of those 10,000, gets an earlier diagnosis? I think there's a very bright future for this group. And part of the, the reason for that is that these rare conditions so often have a clearly definable molecular basis. It, it's not defined for every disease yet, but I think we're, we're trending in that direction. And quickly, I think. 80% of them have a genetic basis. And so as things like the cost of genetic sequencing just falls dramatically, I, the last figure I heard was that it costs around 200 to $250 to sequence a, a human genome now. So as those costs come down, diagnosis is going to become much more available to people. And then the complementary technology to Precision medicine and big data is, of course, artificial intelligence, which helps us to make sense of all that and put, you know, put it into context and make, you know, draw meaning out of it. So I think as those two technologies mature and come together, we'll be able to reduce this diagnostic odyssey down to days to weeks, not months to years. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. What got me really excited to speak with you, Tim, was that you've put this in the hands, not of clinicians, but of pa 
patience. And that, to me, was a major step forward. Do you want to explain how and why you came to that conclusion? So I went to this Global Genes Conference, and up to that point, we had been designing this for clinicians, this, this tool that, that we designed. It allows you to input clinical findings and get back this list of potential diseases. We'd been designing it for clinicians because I thought clinicians are the ones who know the words, the, all the medical terms and stuff, you know, I can, can put it in. And, and I also didn't want to sort of create fear for people that, you know, if they start using this, that they're going to think, oh, no, I have all these terrible things. And they may not have the medical training to sort of quickly sort out and be like, oh, no, I actually probably don't have that. But then I went to this Global Genes Conference and I got talking with someone named Bruce Bloom. And he said, you know, I would strongly encourage you to think about putting this in the hands of patients. And so we, we, we called some of his friends over and we, we tried it out with some people who were rare disease patients who were not, you know, they didn't go to medical school and stuff, but they've had to sort of go to like their own version of medical school because of what they've been through. And that was an eye opener for me because I realized that these people already knew their diagnoses, but they were pulling up, they were using our tool and finding their diagnosis through our tool. And I realized these people know the words. They have had to Google around so much and read and learn and talk to people so much that they, they know the words to use. And that's what made me realize, you know, we, we need to make this available to everybody because even if it can't help everyone, some people it will. So, and then at the same time, that allows us to learn so much about how to serve them better by seeing the way that they use it and then interacting with them while they're using it. We, we've learned a tremendous amount that, that way. So tell us about or describe an example of somebody who might use the tool and how this would help them in the way that you've described the, the tool is available at our website, and so they would go to our, our website, um, it's mi1, that's the number one, mi1.ai slash Enola, and from there you can test it out. It's just in sort of a beta version right now, so everyone needs to recognize this only has rare diseases in the database, so if you have something common, it's not going to pick that up, and it's in testing, so it's going to be imperfect. But you go in to that website, there's a little search bar, you start typing, and you get autocomplete recommendations. And it's important to use the recommendations that come through autocomplete because those are mapped to the specific terms that are connected to rare diseases. So you can't just put in any word right now. But you, you start typing in and you try to find whatever signs or symptoms you have. And it could be, it could be things from, let's say, facial droop to thrombocytopenia to, you know, just try, you know, whatever you have, try, try it out, try typing it in. And then you'll get a list of potential diseases. And then you can look at those diseases and see what other clinical findings are associated with those diseases. And then you can go through the list and be like, oh yeah, I have this, or I don't have that. And you can, you can say plus or minus on those. And the, the list will resort and you keep going until you find some diseases, uh, one or two or three, however many diseases that seem to fit you well enough that you think, I this could be it. I could have this thing. And at that point, now you have a hypothesis that you can test. And right now, your option is to kind of work with your healthcare team to try to test that hypothesis. So you 
you say, okay, well, what are the diagnostic criteria for that disease? Let's, let's work through this and see if I have this. A lot of these, since 80% of them are, have a genetic basis, they're probably gene panels that will have multiple of the diseases that you're considering within a single gene panel. So for insurance purposes, I think it's probably better to try to get a panel that covers multiple of your diseases so that you can get, get an answer back without having to try to get multiple genetic tests covered. And obviously, if you're doing all of this, you're going to have a genetic counselor or a clinical geneticist on board that's going to be helping you navigate that. So that's kind of where it stands right now. I was just thinking that this is a tool that could also be used by medical students when they're on the wards to try and understand or at least get a notion of the other 10,000 diseases that are out there other than the, the common ones that they're going to see on the wards. Had you thought about extending this to medical training? Yeah, that's a great point. We have thought about it. We have, and we'd certainly be open to collaborations in that space. So if anyone's listening to this and has medical school that they're thinking about incorporating something like this into their curriculum, uh, we'd love to talk. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, Tim, and what are the other projects that you're involved in? Who is Tim McLaren? Let's start with that. Thank you. I grew up in Virginia, and I've kind of had to live all over the U.S. for my medical training. I live in San Diego now with my wife, and I've got a three-year-old daughter who's developing her own personality and her own um, ideas on what she wants to do. And (laughs) I'm learning to sort of give her a little bit more autonomy, and that's a tough balance to figure out, but fun, too. I think another project that I'm working on right now that's somewhat related to what we're doing has to do with human values as an aspect of intelligence. When you're sitting with a patient and you're trying to make some decision about how to advise this patient, I think probably three things impact your thinking, or I guess are the substance of your thinking. Your experience, your medical knowledge, and your values as a human being, and what you may perceive their values to be as as a human being. And that last piece, that human values, I think we don't, right now, our machines are completely blind to that. Which is funny, because, I mean, if you go to amazon.com and you you know t- say you want to order some socks it, it can kind of figure out which socks you want to buy or if you go on to like facebook and you start scrolling it can figure out which posts you're probably going to want to look at but in the medical space we're completely blind to this like I, our medical systems have no idea whether a human would prefer to have a stomach ache or a brain tumor it just doesn't exist anywhere in our systems right So I've been working on building the first human, I I call it, for lack of a better word, I kind of hate this term, but (laughs) for lack of a better word, the the first human preferome. So what would you prefer? You know, if you had to have a brain tumor or a stomach ache, which would you prefer? And just basically ranking from number one down to the last thing, all, all the things, all the signs, the symptoms, the diseases, the medications that you might have to take. In a general sense, for the average person, in the average case, what would you prefer to happen or what would you least prefer to happen? 
And then from there, that gives us a template to work off of so that individuals in their individual circumstances will have variations from that template. And we can start to ask, how do people vary from that template? And why do they vary from that template? And can we make predictions about what a person would want? And I think if, if we want intelligent machines that are going to optimize our health, they need to know what, what does that even mean to optimize health? Like, what is optimal to you? And I think having values, having the capacity to understand our values is, is the critical piece of that. So that's a, a project I've been working on recently. And actually, ChatGPT3 is, or ChatGPT has been um, helping me tremendously on that recently. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I'm fascinated by Tim McLaren because, number one, you're a physician, and what we lose sight of in medicine is the incredible creativity of people who end up doing medicine. They're extraordinarily creative, as, as are you and as are many of our guests who've come on this show. And the question is, how is it that people have both that academic ability and also this incredible creativity, which you, we kind of associate with artists mainly. We're not traditionally thought of as problem solvers or, or creatives. You, you'll have come across people like this as well. What do you think that it is that makes you, Tim, and others creative and with this aptitude for science? That's something I've puzzled over too. Like, what is the sort of basis of creativity? And I think the first thing that comes to mind is creativity is so often associated with play. And I, I think perhaps, I don't know, perhaps I just have continued to play in my own mind with ideas and things. And I definitely have had times where I was less creative because I just had less, had to like keep that nose to the grindstone during periods of training and stuff like that. But I think when a person allows their mind to play with an idea, creative things happen. I also noticed that my three-year-old daughter is at her most creative when she's bored. The TV is off. There isn't like something else that's like just demanding her attention and she has the space to be creative. I asked that question really for selfish motives because I'm involved in medical education and it occurs to me that as we discussed that healthcare is in a bit of a crisis and what we need most at this point in medicine isn't the technicians who are going to do the technical side of medicine, although they, they are very helpful. But we need problem solvers. We need people to think out of the box. We need people to dream up solutions that haven't currently been dreamt of. If medical science is doubling its knowledge base at the rate that we've described, then we can't keep on producing doctors who just do the things that we've trained them to do in years gone by. And so I'm trying to understand what it is that brought you into medicine and keeps you in medicine because we need more of that. And we need also to nurture that creativity in medical school so that students don't think, I'm doing this 
in order to have a 30-year job as a clinician because many, some significant numbers are not going to be clinicians. They're going to do much of what you've been doing in these last few years. Do you think that part of it is that we need more students actually to be exposed to your thinking and people like you and, and others who are clinicians but are also thinking back to what it was, what was the aha moment? You talked about the aha moment for you. You were looking at a whole lot of blood results and thought, I can't process this fast enough. I think you have to start with the premise that anything is possible until you run up against the laws of physics. And you start with, so then you, you just start with, okay, well, what, if anything is possible, then what do we want? What do we really want? And then from that point, how do we get from where we are to that to that point? And you just start breaking down, breaking down the problem. And that process forces you to think creatively and think from a try to think from a like a first principles perspective of how does the world work and how can I how could we intervene on on that in order to make it the way we want it to be. And so I, yeah, I guess it's thinking from first principles and having sort of a mission driven mindset of long term, here's what I want, how do I work to that? And then just, you know, maybe a certain amount of naivety that you think that you could actually do it. All great thinkers do that, don't they? They they don't know how they're going to do it, but they do eventually solve the problem. And part of it is their personality and part of it is the choices that they make along the way. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and say, if there are medical students listening to you today, three pieces of advice that you would give somebody going into medicine today, what would they be? Understand the substrate. So understand the human body, dive in and explore that, understand how it works, understand the physiology, understand the words that are at play here, and and just let your curiosity play across that. Because the rest of your career comes from understanding that. That's the substrate. And listen to the patients and let them tell you their stories. Because if you just think about the physiologic layer, you're only getting one layer. But you know, listening to the stories will give you the sort of the why of it all. And the why is kind of what keeps you going from day to day and makes everything meaningful. And the third thing, I guess... Don't lose hope. I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And your career is probably going to include some, we'll call it a medical hobby of some sort, you know, something that's not just straight practicing medicine. And so recognize that even if just practicing medicine is a grind that is hard for you at points in your career, recognize that you can have other interests too and bring those in and have that be a part of how you help people and serve people. Those are my, my two cents. Tim, every now and then on this podcast, I meet somebody who has the potential to solve problems of a failing medical system. I think you are one of those people. It's been an honor spending time with you. And I hope we have more conversations in the future. The very, very best of luck with your innovation innovations. And I am very sure that one day we will be unveiling something quite special. Thanks to Tim McLaren.
thank you very much. I'm really honored to have joined you on this. Thank you. And uh, I really enjoyed your other podcasts as well. So thank you so much for what you do and what you bring to the world. Really appreciate it. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. Thank you.